Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 16th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Articulated like you were deep sympathies to the family um, of Kim Dempsey. And also our horror at what has happened last Saturday in respect of Hamas's attack. Um, on Israel. That's the Thonisha Mihal Martin condemning uh, the attack by Hamas on Israel. The enormity of that atrocity we should not lose sight of and we should never fail to call out um, and then move on. An attack so brutal that history will never forget. It was a moment in time uh, when thousands of people moved over a border. So up to 1,500 were told that all have to be verified. Uh, but murdered 1,300 and injured maybe 2,500. Michal Martin once again reiterated the government's position and called for peace in the region. Ultimately, we need to move on a pathway to peace and reconciliation. It cannot be an eye for an eye and a toot for a toot approach. The Taunasha expressed his concern, however, for innocent Palestinian civilians. We must distinguish between ordinary Palestinians going about their daily lives and those who lead Hamas. Uh, and those who orchestrated this attack by Hamas. We cannot punish, and we, people shouldn't, Israel cannot punish innocent Gazans uh, in indiscriminate bombings, which will result and has resulted in the death of children and the death of women and innocent civilians. Michal Martin speaking in the doll last week. This morning, an Israeli invasion of Gaza is inevitable. I understand Israel has a right to self-defence. Israel has a right to deal with Hamas because Hamas has declared war on Israel and has murdered its civilians. But the entire population of Gaza cannot be collateral damage in terms of that response to Hamas. Um, and international law must apply. Lathanisha Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil last week. Now let's speak to Yankee Fackler, chairman of uh, the Jewish Historical Society of Ireland. Good morning to you, Yankee, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme. I'm sure there's many people like uh, the Lathanisha who are very concerned today for the safety of innocent Palestinian civilians. Do you share those concerns? Yes, of course I do. I mean, anyone would... Uh be worried about any civilian population under threat. But uh, 
really, um, this week, um, my thoughts are not, my first thoughts are not with Gaza. My first thoughts with my brothers and sisters who've been murdered um, in Israel. Absolutely. A, a terrible uh, atrocity. Uh, and I, I think most right-thinking people would agree with that and believe that Israel has the right to defend itself and that it should defend itself against uh, terrorism on that scale. And it certainly was on a, a grand scale for that matter. Uh, but does that include this land invasion, which looks set to be genocidal? Um, I totally object to the word genocidal. That is um, totally the wrong uh, way to look at this. It's looking at the whole thing upside down. Um, I remember when Ireland very quickly agreed that ISIS was a terror organization and anyone belonging to it would be prosecuted. And I think of uh, Lisa Smith, just one um, Irish person who was chased and prosecuted. Hamas is no less um, uh, vicious, uh, murderous, genocidal than ISIS. Um, all they, we saw what they did, and, and it is indescribable mm. what they did. Some of the things can't even be shown um, visually and can't even be spoken about. They are so bad. Now, no country, certainly not uh, Israel, can live with murderers on their border in their constitution, it says we're going to kill every Jew, we're going to get rid of every Jew um, uh, in Israel. Israel has to respond, and the response this time cannot be a tit for tat response like it's been in the past. It's got to get the weapons, it's got to demilitarize Hamas, whatever it takes, and I repeat, Whatever it takes, war is a necessity. War, hang on a second, sorry, Michael. Mm. War is a messy business. Anywhere in the world, war is awful, and I wish we didn't have wars, and I wish nobody um, needed to be in a war. But when war happens, you can't, um, you can't hold back, otherwise you disappear. And Israel's fear now is that the weaponry that is in the hands of Hamas and in Hezbollah in the north, Israel could disappear. And that's, not a, and that's not an exaggeration. And therefore, Israel has to do everything it can. That's it. Mm. Uh, do you believe that there are innocent civilians in Gaza? Of course there are. Of course there are. We know uh, that. There uh, are innocent uh, civilians... And, and is it not is it not inevitable that they will become collateral, collateral damage? That is a definite uh, possibility. Um, but then, how do you describe the civilians, the the, the the hundreds of people running from a music from a music festival? Um, Brendan O'Connor made a very good point. He said, "Just imagine how we would feel if hundreds of people." Were gunned down as they ran screaming from uh, electric picnic. Uh, this is we're, we're dealing with something new here, something mm. that we haven't seen before. A level of barbarism and a level of rape and and murder and evil. You can't sit still. You can't do nothing, and you can't negotiate your way out of it. This has to be um, a total demilitary demilitarization. 
And yes, there will be lots of casualties on both sides. Mm. And I, I think I said at the outset that most right-thinking people would ha- have described the Hamas attack on Israel as a terrible act of terrorism, an appalling uh, atrocity. Having said that, though, can the argument be made that you'll take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Michael, first of all, that is um, that biblical verse is totally, totally misinterpreted. Never did mean uh, literally an eye for an eye. But we're not going to get into a uh, theological discussion. Um, if Israel well, to put that more simply, do, to, to put that, to put that, sorry, Yankee, to put it more simply, uh, do two wrongs make a right? Do two atrocities? Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. What Israel is doing is not a wrong. I just, I refuse to accept this, uh, this, this proportionality uh, argument. I'll tell you why. Because if Israel, let's say today, called a ceasefire, and let's even say that Hamas gave back the. Uh, uh, the people it's captured, which is not going to happen. Um, what about tomorrow? Hamas will just start again and do it all over again. So Israel can't afford that. It, it, it's, it's too late. What, 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 about, what about the children in Gaza? Uh, it has a population, it has a population yes, of 2 million, and half the population are children. I agree with you, but what about the children in Israel? You know, they're not, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. I cry for all of them. I cry for mm. every child that is, that is killed, um, whether deliberately or not deliberately. And that's a big difference. Mm. Um, uh, Hamas came in and deliberately, and I, I, I know it's early morning and I don't want to be too graphic on the radio, but what they did to babies does not, um, cannot be described. Israel never knowingly murders children, and in fact, it is urged hundreds of thousands mm. of Gazans to go south out of the range of where the punishment is going to be. Okay. No other army does that. Okay, that's, that's a, a sound argument. Having said that, though, uh, you've said that the atrocities carried out by Hamas were atrocities uh, that were carried out by a terrorist organization. Are you suggesting that it's appropriate for the Israeli government to act in the very same way, to act like a terrorist organization? I totally refute the question. You are making an argument of proportionality, which I totally reject. We are not acting in the same way. We have not gone in and looked for babies and done terrible things for them. We haven't gone and we haven't raped women. We don't do that. We are in a war, and a war means you've got to act on behalf of your people. It's been like that throughout history, and this isn't about, um, oh, we're using the same. We're not. We're doing something very different. This is self-defense in order that our children should live for the next uh, few years without um, without this hanging over them. It's just not fair, and it's not right to keep making this equivalent, I'm sorry. But is it fair and right to go in and level Gaza and massacre all of the people living there? I don't agree with your terminology. It's not a massacre. What Hamas did is a massacre. What Israel is doing is trying to find every last terrorist Every last jihadi genocide... Mm. But by your own admission, there's going to be collateral damage, and that will be innocent civilians. There's always collateral damage in war. 
That's the way it is. It's not a good thing. But Israel has to defend itself. So I totally reject any uh, equivalent that is made between what Israel has to do to defend its people and what Hamas has, has proved, mm. if anyone needed proving, what they are capable of and what they want to do. Okay. They, if they could regroup, if they could regroup tomorrow, they would do exactly the same. But people are desperate. They can't get out. Uh, it looks like the Egyptian border might open for a couple of hours today. Should, yes, should humanitarian corridors be open to allow innocent civilians to yes, evacuate I, I would, before there yes, is a land yes. invasion? Well, I would agree that, uh, that that would be possible also because in the south, near the Egyptian border, that's not, that's not being targeted and that won't just be targeted by Israel. So if Egypt was to open corridors and bring people out, including the 40 uh, Irish people and, and as many thousands and thousands as want to get out, I say by all means, they won't. That's the trouble. Mm. Egypt won't do that. Well, Egypt doesn't want um, um, Gazans either. Mm. Well, there's a lot of desperate people. 600,000 people yeah. have moved yeah. uh, in yeah. Gaza from the north to the south to try and uh, avoid uh, being slaughtered. Uh, as they yes, would see it, because might, because there is because there is no way right. out, and the mighty Israeli army are on the way. Should yeah, Israel open it? Should... My family, my family, are among two million people as we speak, sitting in shelters. They can't get on with their lives because rockets are coming over all the time. My family in the centre of Israel, not the north, not the south, in a big um, uh, three quarters of a million. Um, a city near Tel Aviv, and they're sitting in their shelters because they are being um, pulverized by rockets coming from Gaza. So, you know, there's a bigger picture here, and it's not a pretty picture. And I don't have, and listen, I'm not a strategist, and I'm mm. not an army man, mm. um, and I'm not a politician. So I don't have answers uh, to uh, military uh, quandary. I'm only saying that Israel must defend its people and it's going to be a terrible cost to Israel. There's going to be, we've already had hundreds of soldiers um, killed, and it's going to go into the thousands, and that is sad, because that's thousands more funerals that my family has already been going to. It's not, it's a terrible situation. Don't mm. get me wrong. And there's no, there's going to be no respite on either side until Hamas, has been demilitarized. There's no other solution. Mm. But do you not believe that civilians should be allowed out of Gaza before the army goes in? Um, yes, but I just also know that uh, Egypt won't take them. Mm. I, sadly, from experience, I know. Egypt ran Gaza for 19 years, uh, between 1948 and 1967. And um, the Gazans don't remember that with... Uh, uh, with much happiness, and um, they don't, they won't take them. Mm. The Egypt will, now, maybe the, the corridors um, could work, and that's getting humanitarian, uh, like food and water in, that could work. If everybody is in agreement, that could work, because that will not interfere with what Israel has to do in Gaza City, which is dismantle the military capability of Hamas, and that might turn out to be tunnel by tunnel, house by house, um, fighter by fighter.
Are you concerned that this may just be the beginning of an almighty war, a, a war uh, with uh, Israel uh, fighting Iran? That has always been on the cards. It has never been um, a pure speculation. Um, I'd like to hope that America's uh, bringing in warships and making such strong statements would deter Iran from getting directly involved um, as opposed to through its proxy. And, of course, Hamas is just a, a, an arm of the um, Iranian octopus. So I don't know. I really don't know. And I shudder to think what would happen if that scenario was to play out. But for the moment, my concern and the concern of most people I know is for the safety of the citizens of the state of Israel who cannot continue living under this uh, threat and after the atrocities of last week, no one is in a mood for looking for a, a quick and I dare say easy um, a political understanding which leaves us equally um, uh, subject to what happened last week. Okay. Yankee, thank you very much indeed for taking our call today. Thank you. Yankee Fackler, chairman of the Jewish Historical Society of Ireland. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's if you want to ring us, 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp a message to us on 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about uh, the political institutions in Northern Ireland and indeed how DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson has been talking about when Stormont returns. Conference, I still believe in devolved government. This party believes in having locally elected representatives take decisions in the best interests of our people, all our people. But more than that, if we want to make the positive case for the union, then having local institutions that succeed in delivering for everyone in Northern Ireland is an essential element in building our case for the union. And we must not allow Republicans to perpetuate the myth that Northern Ireland is a failed and ungovernable political entity. And therefore, in their view, a divisive border poll is required. We can and we must make Northern Ireland work for all its people. To those who argue that direct rule is a better option, I say this. Time and again, Westminster has imposed laws upon us that are not in tune with the needs or the wishes of the people of Northern Ireland. Geoffrey Donaldson, let's speak to Peter McVerry of our sister station, U105 in Belfast. Good morning, Peter. Thanks indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, it looks like white smoke at this stage, does it? It looks like we might be getting now. The speculation has definitely increased over the past couple of weeks that there may be um, a deal on the table and there may be enough um, for Sir Geoffrey Donaldson and elements of the DUP to sign off for. And the question is, can he get enough of his own party over the line for what might be coming? And you'll have heard him there. You know, he was he was saying what needed to be said to the vast majority of his party on, on Saturday, but he was also sending a bit of a coded message back to London to say that he wasn't adverse to returning to Stormont, that it might be something that we could see, but the conditions for him have to be have to be right in terms of the, the offer that's coming from London, both political and financial, and also the ability for him 
to bring his party with him, which won't be won't be that easy, but but does look as if it might be. You know, more possible now than any point in the last 18 months, Michael. Uh, and at what stage uh, would he, he try to return to politics and uh, to government? Well, the, the, he's currently waiting on um, the most recent response from Downing Street. Chris Seaton Harris, the Secretary of State, is leading the negotiations on behalf of Downing Street. And what we understand is that there's a, a document with an updated offer or position um, from Downing Street that's due to arrive possibly as early as this week, maybe next week, uh, into the hands of Sir Geoffrey and his lieutenants in the DUP. And they'll want to look at that to see whether they think that is enough for them to be able to sell that to the majority of their party. There's, there's probably three camps really within the DUP, Michael, at the minute. One of them is those who are behind Sir Geoffrey and those who predominantly believe that they should go back to Stormont and that they're not doing themselves any favour by continuing to stay out any longer. You've got a cohort you know, led by Sammy Wilson, who spoke on Saturday, who don't believe the right thing is to go back and who believe that they should, they should, they should stay out. And then you've got probably the largest group, and there's that group in the middle, that could be swayed either way, depending on what exactly is in the deal and what exactly they believe is um, for the benefit of the party. And as you heard Sir Geoffrey there say, Northern Ireland, he was very mm. careful to say to people that actually, you know, people within the DUP, that actually, you know, they could be the people who have the blame for it not working laid very clearly at their feet if they don't take up an offer that might be that might be coming. So he's been talking to them and trying to get them maybe to move a couple of, of inches to the left and to understand that actually in any negotiation you won't get everything mm. that you want. But um, you know he, he's claiming he's likely to claim going forward that you know they were told the Northern Ireland Protocol couldn't be changed. It has now been changed into the format of the Northern Ireland Framework. The Northern Ireland Framework isn't ideal. Isn't exactly what the DEP would want but you know, be able to claim that by staying out they were able to get something, by staying out a bit longer after the framework they'd be able to get something more and possibly you know, if nothing happens in the next three or four weeks Michael, we're going to come into that Christmas territory again, we do have a bit of a history in Northern Ireland mm. of pushing deadlines beyond deadlines, we do have a bit of a history of having late night talks in the mouth of Christmas but equally what's coming down the horizon for the UK including Northern Ireland is a Westminster election we're not sure if that's going to happen in May or if that's going to happen in the autumn. But the political reality seems to be if we can't get something done this side of Christmas, then the focus, particularly of London, Rishi Sunak and Chris Heaton-Harris, mm. is going to shift on to their own future uh, and, and to keep Labour out. And that any chance that there is, is is now and in the next 68 weeks as opposed to in the next 68 months. And uh, I think there's concern, is there not, in the DUP that this uh, policy of abstentionism uh, could result in losses in uh, the general election. Uh, what about those who are in favour of returning to Stormont? Are, are, are they willing to serve under Michelle O'Neill as a Sinn Féin First Minister? Uh, those members of the DUP, you mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. Would be keen to go back. Uh, yes, well, they, they have, despite um, you know the number of times that accusation has been levelled against them, the DUP have said that their issue of going back isn't that they won't, they won't serve under a Sinn Féin First Minister. They have said that their issue is around the, the protocol. Not everybody believes that, or everybody believes that to the, the extent the DUP might, might deny it. You do have a number of people there who have been, you know, the likes of the, the Gordon Lyons, who there, the former economy minister, who's been there before. He's one of those who's the chief advocate for going back and who have served, you know, in that cabinet, in that, in that Northern Ireland executive where you had the first and the deputy first minister. Don't forget, on paper, those rules are no mm. different the way that the, 
the particular um, elements of the Good Friday Agreement were set up. Both of those roles are the same, even though the, the title is very different. So the proof of that will be in the will be in the pudding. But if that's if that's the reason that they don't go back, then they'll do themselves even more political damage. You know, in the long term, amongst more moderate uh, unionists and against the, the floating voters that they're they're fighting against parties like the um, Alliance Party up here for. Uh, and when it comes uh, to returning to Stormont, uh, if that is what happens, uh, is uh, there concern that a delay or indeed a continuing of uh, this position not to go back to Stormont uh, could make the argument for a border poll? Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson talking about uh, the views uh, that are, are uh, and the voices that are getting louder in terms of uh, United Ireland. Yes, yes. So uh, uh, absolutely. The longer, the longer we're without it, and the longer we we manage to function, albeit maybe you know hopping on one leg without a storm at Michael, that the longer it makes people think that that's maybe not the only solution going forward. Uh, he was careful there to point out that the negatives that there are around direct rule. There have been a number of policies brought in in Northern Ireland that the DUP wouldn't have been in favour of. But without Stormont, we had the uh, we had the British government going ahead. And bringing those in, in terms of the the United Ireland and the border poll, you know, the, well, that was the DUP last weekend who had their their annual conference. The Sinn Féin Ardesh is happening in a slum now on the tenth and eleventh of November. That's likely to be the last Ardesh for Sinn Féin before they hope to be in power potentially on both sides of the border. You know, and then mm. that will be something that will be worrying Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP, because you'd then have you know Sinn Féin potentially if they were in power in the Republic. Um, mm would be in power as a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement and likely to push towards that United Ireland and the border pole. You also have, you know, and this, as well as the Stormont, one of the things Michael has brought, brought us closer to a, a serious debate about a border pole is Brexit, which the DUP supported and the DUP in some ways with the kingmakers, mm. um, for, definitely for Theresa May and maybe a little bit then for, for Boris Johnson. But Brexit and how it's gone, the inability of the UK to come up with a Brexit that everybody could agree with um, has meant that lots of people here in Northern Ireland are looking at it and thinking, well, actually, maybe it would be better off out of the UK and in United Ireland. Those may be people who wouldn't traditionally be seen as somebody who might aspire to you know, a 32-county socialist republic. There might mm-hmm. be people who would historically be known in Northern Ireland as Catholic Catholics and who would look at their bank account before they would look at their passport. How, how serious do you think the division in the DUP is or uh, what potential... Uh, is there for that division? As you say, uh, there's uh, one camp uh, that supports Jeffrey Donaldson and returning to Stormont, uh, another camp uh, that supports Sammy Wilson, Nigel Dodds and others uh, that doesn't want to return to Stormont. Uh, and then you have people who could be swayed either way. But are, are we talking about uh, a potential split in the DUP? Well, potential is the big word in there because for this moment in time, He's been able to keep them all on board and able to keep them within that one tent. And the DUP, you know, lots of them aren't afraid to say um, to say what they think, but none of them have sort of jumped ship as yet. You know, the, the issue is that up until now, he's been dealing with what might happen. But once we get a reality of what does happen, if there's a deal and he decides to go for that deal, then yes, he will face internal criticism. I'm not sure if he faced a split. You, you had things in the DUP before, like the establishment of the... The TUV traditional unionist voice led by Jim Allister, who's a very vocal critic of um, 
of Geoffrey Donaldson under the, the the DUP and who was a who was a former senior party member. You know, there is the potential maybe for some people to jump ship and move across even more to the right wing and the ultra conservatives and move across to the traditional unionist voice. I suppose Sir Geoffrey will hope that if he gets Stormont back up and running the next time we get to a Stormont election, he would hope to see his position vindicated through the ballot box. Potentially, as you say, uh, through the DUP retaining their seats at, at Westminster if they go back to Stormont and then potentially when we do get the next election um, to the Assembly, he'd hope to see those people who remain on the DUP ticket then getting a strong enough vote for the DUP to, to retain their high number of seats in the executive and potentially go over Sinn Féin again and get the First Minister's post. But, you know, difficult to watch and difficult mm. to tell. We're not sure how far people will go. And you'll also have those people who are critics and those people who don't want to go back will have critics of their own, within their own constituencies as well, who say, listen, 18 months or 21 months is more than enough. Look what it's done to Northern Ireland. Look what it's done to a waiting list. Look what it's done to a place in the economy. Look what it's done to our, our nurses. You know, that, that um, we're going to have to get back and get get real politics and, and how mm-hmm. it's affecting the man and the woman on the street as opposed to any ideological argument. Indeed. Peter, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Peter McVerry of our sister station, U105 in Belfast. Michael Reed on LMFM. A record 22.5 billion euro will be spent on health services next year, but the level of funding provided is not adequate, according to the chief executive of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, who says a deficit of 2.5 billion euro can be expected this year and next year, and a deficit this year is expected to run to 1.5 billion euro. There's efforts now to try and save some money or not to uh, increase uh, that deficit before the year's end. The Irish Medical Organisation says it is shocked and appalled that uh, this includes plans to implement a recruitment freeze. We're looking at a close to seven plus billion uh, since 2020 now having been allocated additional to our health service uh, which has resulted um, in expansion of services across the board, expansion of capacity um, uh, right across the board. Uh, and the funding this year uh, will include staffing for new hospital, hospitals, ICU and community beds. It includes staffing for the six surgical hubs. It includes investments in our workforce, such as, such as advanced practice, more college and training places, and more hospital consultants. Uh, we will continue to invest in our community services through funding for mental health services, social inclusion measures and older people. Uh, we have recruited up to 22,000 22, extra people into our health service since this government um, was formed and we've delivered record levels of investment in our health service. That's Tanisha Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil last week. Let's speak to Dr Rachel McNamara who's uh, the chair of the NCHD committee of the IMO. That's the Irish Medical Organisation. A very good morning to you Dr McNamara and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You're shocked and uh, appalled at the idea of a recruitment freeze uh, and you say that we don't have uh, enough doctors as things stand. How could that be the case if as Michal Martin said there are 22,000 staff have uh, been recruited in recent times. Good morning, Michael. Um, So this news has come as a huge shock and a huge disappointment to, I suppose, my group as the NCHDs, who are the junior doctors, and we're the doctors who um, your listeners would meet um, if they have the misfortune to end up in ED or on on a medical ward. And 
across the country, we still have doctors who are doing 70, 80 hour shifts. We have um, rosters that are being fully filled by just two doctors. So if one of them goes down, it's left to one to pick up the entire service. So this this um, recruitment freeze is, I suppose, being put in place because um, they, there's supposedly uh, enough doctors or a surplus of doctors delivering the system um, or delivering the services. And from our point of view, that is absolutely not the case. And from the point of view of our members um, who have come out in their droves to message us during the weekend, they're very upset that um, when they're consistently working above legal and safe working hours that they don't know where this is coming from and they're and and they're very i suppose disheartened and they're they're now seen without hope that um we're not going to be able to put additional staff into the system to make things better for patients and better for those staff to put it very simply you can't spend money that you don't have so where is the solution? Is it making more funding available to the HSE or is it finding efficiencies? Well, even in the worst years of austerity um, back in the, in the late 2000s, there was never a recruitment freeze put on clinical staff because it was, it was recognised that they're an essential asset. Like there's no point rolling out um, waiting list initiatives or, or clinical care programmes if you don't have the staff to staff them and and as NCHDs we're I suppose almost an easier target because um, in terms of our contracts they're all temporary contracts there is no NCHD on, on a permanent contract in this country so it, it, it's really we're, we're, we're seeing this as a very short term um, solution which ultimately down the line is going to impact negatively on patients because it's it's targeting an essential service. We need these staff to deliver these services. And going into the winter months when, you know, there's going to be, doctors are inevitably mm. going to get sick or there's going to be an upsurge in requirements, uh, the fact that we won't even be able to bring in additional staff to get us over that, that period is, is hugely concerning for us. Right. Uh, and those contracts uh, that you have with the HSE, uh, they run for about six months usually, don't they? They can run from three, they can be three months long, six months long, um, up to a year. And at, at the moment, um, this is a very time of year where we're um, trying to entice mm. NCHGs to come home from Australia, from New Zealand. Uh, it's the very time of year where the applications for visas abroad are open. So on hearing this news, any doctor in this country who is considering leaving is absolutely going to make that decision now to leave. And... This is going to have huge negative ramifications on our retention, um, our retention hope mm. for doctors for this country. And if we can't safeguard this resource, ultimately it's going to be the patients on waiting lists and the patients on wards that are going to feel the effect. Uh, and is it December that new contracts will be offered? It, it depends. So right. every uh, every July, there's. Um, Generally, there's a, ch- there's a changeover of staff. Yeah. People look, will look to renew their contracts. Um, in December as well, a good few um, doctors will finish up on contracts and hope to start on new ones. Mm. And, and well, over, well, that's the point I was coming to. What, what happens in a, a situation like that if there's a recruitment uh, freeze? Uh, will that be exempted, uh, that contracts uh, can be renewed? Well, 
from the point of view of the of the current recruitment freeze, there are some there are some elements of it that need to be ironed out. But last December, we reached an agreement with the HSE that we needed 800 additional NCHDs or junior doctors in order to make sure that the doctors that are currently in post aren't working excessive 70, 80 hour weeks, that they could take at least one day off in 10. And the fact that this recruitment freeze has come into place means that we, we absolutely cannot hope to achieve that target. So that agreement cannot be upheld in these circumstances. So at the moment, what you have are loads of doctors working huge levels of overtime, mm. and that's costing the HSE way more than having more doctors on the floor doing fewer hours. False economy. So that's why yeah. this, mm. yeah, so this, mm. so that's why this recruitment freeze kind of flies in the face of, of safety, mm. uh, and it also it doesn't make sense as yeah. far as we're concerned Very taken aback by what you said working 70, 80 hour long weeks uh, and hoping to get one day and 10 off uh, it's uh, not uh, ideal it's, by no, it's any not stretch much, of the imagination much, Yeah, you're, you're right no it, it's mm. not uh, this is not um, this is the, the situation that we're at and that we we reached that agreement last year and it was considered to be uh, a, a step in the right direction but now with this uh, um, coming as real out of the blue for us, um, we, we don't really know uh, how, how that could possibly be achieved. Or, or we, um, messages coming in from doctors across the country now saying that their, their futures are hugely uncertain. Um, they, they're not too sure, will they, will they be able to secure employment in the area that they want, okay. which, of course, will drive emigration abroad undoubtedly very worrying Rachel I have to leave it there but thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning Dr Rachel McNamara is the chair of the NCHD committee of the IMO the Irish Medical Organisation Michael Reed on LMFM. A number of uh, comments coming to us uh, this morning following the interview with Yankee Fackler and indeed quite a a number of uh, people objecting to what Yankee had to say uh, on the programme. Tom texting saying, I don't know who that person is that you have on talking about Israel, but please don't have them on again. He he found it objectionable. Uh, I think it's true to say from his comment, uh, an email came to us from Teresa Riley who says, no, 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 Michael, we can't listen to more from this man defending Israel's terrorism and war crimes. Cut him off uh, immediately, said uh, Teresa. Uh, somebody else, uh, please get him off uh, the radio. He doesn't deserve airtime. What he's saying was disgraceful. Uh, another WhatsApp then uh, from uh, somebody who says, we saw what a terrorist group carried out, not innocent women and children. There is no excuse for that. How can something uh, be a definite possibility? This man is full of it. This is Yankee Fackler again trying to excuse acts of violence, uh, but there is no excuse. Please get him off at the station if he's trying to justify these acts. He, he doesn't deserve airtime. How, how is anyone going to know when Hamas has been dismantled? Excuses and nothing else. A lot more comments in, in, in that vein. I'll come to some more of them in a moment. But I, I want to go to the phones now and to hear from the Irish-Palestinian Solidarity Campaign. Betty Purcell uh, is on the line. Betty, a former RTE producer uh, and indeed uh, who somebody who represents uh, the campaign group. Good morning to you, Betty. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme once again. Um, Good morning, morning, Michael. What what do you make of what's happening at the moment? I'm sure, like everybody, you find the actions of Hamas a a week ago to be totally unacceptable. 
Yeah, I mean, what's happening now is before the eyes of the world, there are war crimes happening, indiscriminate bombing of uh, civilians, um, attacks on hospitals, um, where doctors are bravely trying to treat um, patients and children. And um, then the other war crime is actually the deprivation of food, electricity, water and fuel, water being the most extreme version um, and, um, you know, I've just been looking at pictures of people um, trying to get uh, food and water this morning for their families. It's absolutely devastating and it's a war crime um, right there in front of our very eyes. And I think the hospitals um, will run out of fuel today. Uh, so uh, we're looking at a, a dire that's, situation. That's right. That's mm. right. And I mean, the thing about it is that whatever anybody thinks about what Hamas did, There is absolutely no justification in international law for the indiscriminate attacks on civilians which is taking place now. And uh, the State of Israel, of course, has formed this because um, way back as far as 1948, they drove 800,000 people from their homes. And in 1967, they did the same, imposing Mm. a military uh, rule. Um, over the uh, citizens in the um, in in the west in the West Bank, and um, so th- th- they've been eroding the whole possibility of a two-state solution mm. over the years by building 650,000 settlers are now in there, and they're armed to the teeth. They're violent and vicious, and they're running Palestinian farmers off their land. Um, you know, there've been just in the last week. There were before the Hamas uh, attacks. There were six um, Palestinian communities just emptied of people with uh, settlers moving into their lands. But the action, the actions of Hamas were uh, extreme. Uh, has Hamas not? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Not betrayed its own people. Has it not betrayed Palestinians in Gaza? 
Well, we don't take a position one way or the other about PA or, or Hamas. Uh, what we do is we support the Palestinian mm. people. But when, you, Palestinian but, but, when you, people, but when you heard about the uh, atrocity uh, and the slaughter of innocent people by Hamas, uh, wasn't it inevitable that Israel would retaliate uh, and that uh, the retaliation uh, would be uh, something uh, on this scale? Uh, and you'd have to ask yourself, would you not, why did Hamas take the action it did uh, if it was as obvious as that. Was it, was it a suicide wish? Of course, everybody asks um, what, what, the, um, what that action was about and nobody wants to see civilians um, either killed or taken hostage, as happened. But you have to remember the powder keg that Gaza has become. I mean, this has not been everything was fine up to last week. Um, you know, people have been already living in an open-air prison. There is apartheid. There is starvation of the civilian population, as in uh, Israel deciding how many calories people are entitled to get within Gaza. Um, restrictions on fishermen, restrictions on civilians, people not being able to travel, uh, travel freely or even travel um, to visit families in other parts of uh, the West Bank or in Jordan. Mm. Um, and I know personally people who um, have been trying to get out for family occasions and can't. So, I mean, can you imagine? You've done nothing wrong. You're just a civilian. You're a baker or a fisherman or a teacher. And um, this is the kind of um, venomous position that you've been, you've been put in. It's, it's absolutely outrageous what Israel has been doing. I think you'll find that the Irish population, um, and not only Ireland, but all over the, the world, we're seeing, um, we're seeing the mass protests and people are standing for Palestine because they know that there has been a huge historical injustice mm. done and one that continues. And um, most importantly, we've had, um, we've had a number of protests in the last um, few days, but we have our big national protests next Saturday, um, which is starting from the Garden of Remembrance at one o'clock. And it's really, really important for as many Irish people as possible to to show um, their solidarity because we are watching an unfolding war mm. crime happening before it's our very eyes. Uh, it's really frightening to think of how many lives will be lost uh, come next Saturday. Uh, 600,000 yeah. people are on the move in Gaza with nothing but the shirts on their backs, it seems, hoping to avoid the onslaught. That's, and it looks like it's going to be... That's literally the case that that is a war crime in itself, the mm. forcible uh, evacuation of a million citizens, uh, many of them children, because half of the population of Gaza are children, mm. many of them elderly people and the ill, the doctors, uh, Medicines on Frontier has been speaking out about uh, Israeli demands that they just empty the hospitals. Mm. What are you supposed to do? Just pe- put people who are on life support and are on drips out onto the side of the road and flee as a doctor. And the doctors have said, no, we will not do that. Can, uh, Egypt, save these, can, can Egypt save these people? Uh, there is talk that the border will open for some time. Uh, it'll be limited uh, and it'll allow aid in. But should they uh, allow people to evacuate? Well, you see, Egypt has a position there. And um, what's happening is that the um, foreign nationals are to be let out today um, is what 
is what the understanding seems to be. That's what uh, Israel will allow, most especially, of course, the American uh, Palestinians, mm. uh, Palestinian Americans, I should say. And um, but but the forcible movement of a million people into Israel, into Egypt, is not going to be a solution. It's just going to be a second Nakba. I mean, we know what happens with the Nakba when. Uh, so many people are living um, in Jordan and Lebanon and around the world uh, who have been expelled from their homes. Just imagine yourself, Michael. I mean, imagine if it had happened uh, in Belfast that um, that uh, the British government had just kind of moved in and said, well, we're taking over all of this area and we're going to put in planters or, or, or people who don't even come from from the, from the country. Well, bad and all um, as that is, uh, what really concerns me or what concerns me more, uh, I think, is uh, the idea of a, an onslaught, an attack from land, air and sea with no way out. Uh, it's going to be a bloodbath, is it not? It, it is going to be a bloodbath. It is going to be a bloodbath and it already is against the, the civilians. Um, I mean, people are going to die as well, don't forget, by um, natural methods, by, live, by uh, being displaced from their homes, by being out on the side of the road, by being taken away, babies from incubators, mm. etc. So there is going down, to be that. Yeah. And there yeah. is indiscriminate bombing going on as we speak, even to the areas where Israel has sent people to go. So um, they're sending people uh, from the north to the south and then they're bombing them in the south and on the roads on the way to the south. I mean, this is absolutely unconscionable stuff that is going on. It's, it's so upsetting. And, um, you know, Israel has always um, gone against international law. Um, they have defied all the UN attempts to ameliorate the situation of Palestinians. They have refused to accept what Amnesty International, uh, Beth Salem and uh, Human Rights Watch have said, which is that they um, implement a policy of apartheid against Palestinians. Now, that is a very big word, apartheid. Mm, very big word, and, yes. Mm. Yeah, and, and um, Ireland played its part in getting rid of a South African apartheid. I was involved in that campaign myself. And um, it's just, that's how important it is. Amnesty International spent four years investigating. They didn't just come out from the top of their head with the word apartheid. They investigated at every level and and discovered that it was economic, judicial um, apartheid. You know, everything from separate roads, separate court systems, separate policing, um, separate education, hospitals, um, the number of Palestinians who have died because they weren't able to travel to um, hospitals in mm. um, in uh, Israel to get cancer treatment and, and other treatments. So this is what you're dealing with now is an opportunity for the international community to address that ongoing apartheid and to look for a just solution for the Palestinian people. Mm. And I have to say one other thing, mm-hmm. uh, Michael, and it's this. The position of the EU has been truly shocking. Yeah. I mean, the EU had positioned itself as being um, for for human rights um, historically. And now with Ursula von der Leyen's um, statements and visit to Israel, she has been ahead of the US in terms of her support for Israel. It's absolutely outrageous. And I know reading the Irish Times that there is a lot of 
Um, there is a lot of uh, strain in the EU about that. Yeah. And I call for our MEPs and our the Irish government to um, to demand that the EU takes a stand against these war crimes. Yeah. Well, uh, in fairness, Ireland with Denmark and Luxembourg uh, tr- try to insert into the EU statement that there wouldn't be an escalation of violence. I think a lot of people would like to hear Ursula von der Leyen say there are plenty of innocent civilians in Gaza uh, uh, and uh, whatever uh, problem uh, Israel has with Hamas, that those innocent civilians shouldn't be caught up in it. Betty, I have to leave I'm sorry. Okay, just one last. Yeah, very quickly. You know, there is no way they're going to root out Hamas by bombing civilians. That is just not going to happen. Um, uh, Killing civilians is never allowable under international law. Betty, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you. Betty Purcell uh, is a former RTE producer uh, and represents uh, the Irish Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Michael Michael Reed Reed on LMFM. Well, there's a a lot to be welcomed in Budget 24, but there's still a long way to go to make sure everyone can access a decent standard of living, good quality services and opportunities to thrive in this country. This is according to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, Nessa Vaughan, Chair of Vincent de Paul's Social Justice Committee, is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Nessa, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You believe that people will still be struggling in 2024? Good morning, Mike, and thank you for having us on. Oh. There are many things to be welcomed um, in in Budget 24, but however there are areas of disappointment, um, maybe if I mention some of those first, that uh, one of the main areas that we're disappointed with is the um, failure to... Um, benchmark you know, the, the social welfare um, core payment with, infl- with inflation. Um, so we, we call for increases of €27, Euro, and that's just uh, per week. That's just the standstill. Mm. Uh, what we got was €12 Euro increase per week. Now, we know the government also uh, allocated once-off payments, a series of once-off payments and mm. double payments. Uh, and whilst they are very welcome to help people get over the winter, they are temporary and they're once-off. So when they're gone, they're gone. Yeah, but they'll still be there for the 12 months of next year. It, has the government done enough to get people through those 12 months? Well, I think they've, they've gone a long way to help cushion um, um, the, the the inflationary impact, but I, I we we would prefer to see increases in call rates because it it, it brings uh, it guarantees security, the, uh, you know, ongoing income that people then don't have to, um, you know, they can manage their budget better over mm. over a longer period of time. Where you get a one-time payment, you may spend that on something, um, and and uh, but we also feel they will actually, notwithstanding. The, the once-off payments, and many for many, they will still be worse off or, or uh, taken into account the inflation, the impact over the last three years. It's hard to understand a continuation of once-off payments, is it not? Uh, and if they're needed continuously, perhaps they should be incorporated uh, as part of uh, social welfare. Exactly. That, that's, that would be a point we'd make. Like, like tax reductions are, 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 aren't once-off, you know, they're not given in lump sums or the impact of tax reductions. They're continuous uh, impact on people uh, every week in their 
take home pay. So we, we would we would we would say that uh, we would say that if the child uh, qualified child um, payment also uh, didn't keep uh, best with, um, with 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 inflation. But there are you know, there are as I said um, there are also you know there are many features that are to be welcomed. But so we would continue to advocate to close that gap so that people can live their lives with dignity. But there's a floor below which below which people do not fall. So. Um, you know, we mm. we welcome the national the increase in the national minimum wage, but we would like to see that to be increased over time to uh, to, to to meet the, the living cost of a living wage, uh, and then also you know so that protects people in employment, mm. and then that people on welfare and people on disability that they would uh, receive a, a, a payment a raise that's in line with the minimum essential standards of living. That's the research that we do, our consumption research centre shows the, the amount a person requires to live in dignity, not yeah. in luxury. And we've all become acutely aware uh, over the last uh, number of years uh, that there always seems to be something unexpected as things stand. I suppose we're seeing some positive move in the cost of energy with a lot of providers bringing down their charges. But the war in the Middle East and the conflict in Gaza could certainly have a detrimental impact on oil prices and so forth. Yes, yes. And again, we do welcome the... The one-off, if you like it, they are one-off increases in um, in energy credits. You know, they and, and that has and did help people last year. Guess hmm. it doesn't fully compensate, of course, but it, it helped. It went a long way, and there are other measures in the budget to one-off measures. But they're universal, so it means that people who are very well off who don't feel the impact of increase in, in energy prices also get that payment. So we would rather use the total package to be targeted to people who, who need it most. Okay. Nesson, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Apologies, by the way, uh, for the quality of uh, the phone line, uh, but I think well worth listening to Nesson and thank you at home for bearing with us through that. Nesson Vaughan, Chair of uh, the St. Vincent de Paul Social Justice Committee. Let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us. James Andrade says, thinking mathematically, why don't the two million people in Gaza turn on the so-called handful of Hamas terrorists and force them out of Gaza. This could solve so much, but they won't. Stand back and think Egypt won't take them? Why? Says James in Drogheda. Uh, Jerry in Wilkinstown says, Michael Wood, those people who are complaining about your guest this morning, that's uh, Yankee Fackler, uh, who was um, uh, talking uh, about Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, our caller says, uh, for those people who complained about Yankee, rather than have someone on defending the murderous bastards that slaughtered 250 people attending a musical festival in the name of the Palestinian people, terrorists to the core, says Jerry. Thanks, uh, Jerry and Wilkinstown, for that. Um, somebody else says Israel holds all the aces, cutting off water, power, etc. to a full nation is totally obscene. Israel is torturing Palestinians for decades and it's been ignored. It looks as if Israel is now trying to take all Palestinian lands and I think that is their, their goal and now the opportunity is there. Margaret says genocide is uh, the deliberate destruction of a nation and its people and it sounds like that's what Israel is going to do. It's against the UN Charter for Human Rights. Israel only became a nation in 1948 
when the British left Palestine and the country was renamed Israel. So who really is in the wrong here? Is it the British who left it in a mess or the UN who had a hand in establishing Israel? The Israelis are not blameless in this. Since 1948, they've pushed and displaced Palestinians from their own land. The Israelis have control over electricity, water and food that goes to Gaza. How can that be? Or how is it allowed to happen if there's supposed to be two states? That's wrong. It takes two sides to fight a war. No war ever ends well. And the people who declare it are well protected from the bombs and bullets. I do condemn what Hamas did to innocent people. It was vile and inhumane, says Margaret as well. Thanks for your message. Our phone number 0419 Text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, a couple of people in touch with us early this morning about uh, the roads. Apologies uh, for the delay in bringing your messages, but we're going to talk uh, about what was another terrible weekend on Irish roads in a moment. John and Dundalk in touch saying 70% of lights are turned off on the M1 by the operator. When I queried this, I was told it was to help Ireland's carbon print uh, John says that's a a joke. Two deaths on the M1 in the past two weeks, both at night and another serious accident. Can you ask uh, the M1 operators, are the lights going to be turned back on? We uh, certainly will do that for you, John, and thanks for your message to the programme. Uh, Somebody else uh, saying a point on road safety. Can someone please make a call out to the motorcycle population. Three killed this weekend alone. The number of them increase every year. They're not teenagers on these motorbikes. Men in their 30s, 40s and 50s speeding around the countryside trying to relive their youth. Cop on guys in extra age and slow down. That's Pat and Bob Brigham. Thanks as always for your message. Well, it has been a, a dreadful weekend on the roads. Five men died uh, there were lives lost in Waterford, Roscommon, Kerry, Louth and Limerick, uh, bringing the total number of people who died on Irish roads this year to 149. Let's uh, speak to Tony Toner, who is an on-road driving consultant. And a very good morning to you, Tony, and thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. A- a- any thoughts on what might be driving up the number of fatalities on Irish roads this year? It comes down, Michael, to human error. Um, we have to take responsibility. Um, 90 plus percent of all collisions are human error. Not acts of God, not the black dog, not uh, you know, trees falling, albeit that does occur. Um, it is down to somebody makes a mistake and somebody maybe unfortunately gets caught up in the aftermath of that mistake. Um, you know, we're just after saying goodbye to our hopes on, on, on the road. We, the whole nation for three weeks has been glued to the TV. We've taken up rugby. We know the finite details of the rules of rugby now like we didn't know heretofore. You know, we are, I've said this before here on your show. We need to get a level of road fitness going in Ireland akin to the way we take on board sport, the way we support our ga, our soccer, 
or, or rugby or, or uh, hockey when yeah. the ladies did so brilliantly. But we'd have we referees, wouldn't we? We'd have referees and uh, we'd have people making sure that the rules were followed. There uh, has uh, to be a referee on the pitch, Michael. Yeah, and what about the referee on the pitch that is the Irish Road Network? Uh, are we doing enough uh, to police the roads? You talk about error, but there, is there a question of irresponsible behaviour by motorists who are driving too fast, who are drink driving, drug driving, on their phones or whatever the case may be? There is a definite lack of uh, a traffic their presence on our motorway network. Uh, I travel across to Galway, Sligo, I was at Belfast the other day, uh, up and down, and you will not see a motorway patrol vehicle on our motorway network. Um, and I have no idea, well, they, they, you can only put it down to it being a matter of uh, what I call policy, where those people are engaged somewhere else doing other forms of guard of work. Um, mm. But there has to be, um, there used to be a guard at traffic core. It's now called roads policing, which I think is quite honestly just marketing, um, uh, how would you call it, slim flam. Uh, you know, it, it, just because you see it on the car doesn't mean it's happening. Mm. Uh, when there was a proper traffic core there, you knew it. They had unmarked vehicles, um, uh, on occasion, and you know everybody knew not to misbehave uh, on the roads um, because there was a risk of being pulled. There was a risk of a camera car catching you and taking you in and showing you your bad behaviour on the thing caught, and there is no escape from that. Well, call it roads uh, policing if they will, uh, but the number of guardi assigned to roads policing is at the lowest level it's been uh, at since 2017. There's some fascinating data in uh, the Irish Times uh, this morning. Connor Lally, its security and crime editor, has uh, done an analysis of some of the statistics that come from the guardi. Uh, there's 659 police who are dedicated to, to the roads. That's down from 692 at the end of last year. As I say, that's the lowest, Tony, since 2017. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, the number of alcohol breath tests carried out by the Gardaí at checkpoints has dropped by more than half. Uh, and uh, there are far fewer motors being caught using mobile phones. Speeding detections by the Gardaí are much lower compared with the pandemic period. I suppose in many ways that speaks for itself, doesn't it? Well, look, at road behaviour is, in Ireland, it's, I'll be polite, it could be so much better. There are people out there who, who think it's a competition out on the road. They behave like as if they're a member of Gladiator or something. Um, you cannot have a situation where people are willing to get into conflict on the road. And I'm not talking about road rage. I'm talking about really bad behaviour when it comes to their movement off a vehicle moving at pace on our roads. And the term speed is used so much out of context. Once the vehicle is in motion, it has speed inherent in it. Uh, But if you cannot stop in that distance, you can see, to be clear, you're simply going too quick for the conditions. It doesn't matter what the posted speed limit is. It's not a target, as has been said many, many times on your program before. Um, People should go out and, as I say, 
get their knowledge level up on what their obligations are as drivers, indeed as passengers, and it goes for all road users, pedestrians, cyclists, the whole nine yards, motorcyclists, have to Mm. increase their own knowledge. They don't know the rules, but they will argue you the rules of the game on Saturday night. You know? mm, yes, uh, but uh, if we're not policing the roads or policing the roads sufficiently, uh, you're going to have problems, are you not? And when it comes to speeding, Irish Times reporting today, 160,000 fixed charge notices expected by the end of the year. But that 160,000 compares to 181,000 in 2020. There's 2.2 million cars on a national car park. And you're nabbing 160,000 of them. Uh, I don't know if that's an efficient uh, use of of time uh, or indeed an indication. Um, Again, speed within, and I'm certainly not advocating speeding, but Mm. within uh, speeding on, on motorways, if you have 120 kilometer posted speed limit on our motorways um, and you have people going up and they're doing 10%, 20% more than that that's serious um, uh, you know they need to be pulled in and have a chat with uh, most certainly mm. um, it's irresponsible And what about drink uh, driving? That seems to be on the increase uh, and again more interesting statistics from the Irish Times. They expect 150,000 breath tests by the end of this year. That 150,000 compares to 314,000 tests in 2018 and 316,000 in 2019. You don't need me to tell you, Michael, that we have in association with uh, having a good time, which involves the use of uh, the, mm. the, the consumption of alcohol, um, we 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 will we will open a, a can or a bottle of bubbly, um, you know, when we're happy, when we're depressed, when we're celebrating, when mm. we're drowning our sorrows. Call it what you want. Uh, and that's the, your that's the, your own the, business. But when you get in behind yeah. uh, the wheel of a motor car, it's uh, it's everybody's business. Yes, and the, the people have to know that it is drink driving. It is not drunk driving. Mm. You don't have to be falling around the place slurring your words. Mm. But the alcohol in your system can be over that permitted. And if you are a professional driver, somebody who drives for a living, your alcohol limit is down to 20 milligrams, the same as a novice uh, learner driver. What about the phone? Uh, it's an awful distraction uh, and it's illegal, uh, but you see it. Every day, uh, how many times is the fella in front of you at the traffic lights still sitting there when the light goes green because they're on their phone? Now, they expect by the end of this year to have charged about 17,000 people for using a mobile phone when they're driving. That seems pathetic in itself. Uh, It compares to close to 30,000 in 2019 and close to 25,000 in 2020. Well, uh, I I have a a young relative who's currently in Australia, and uh, over there, the phone is put in the glove box. Um, The static cameras, the ANPR cameras, if they catch a glimpse of the phone in your hand on the seat on the top of the dash, 
there's a fixed penalty notice immediately sent out to you. And it's it's harsh. Mm. So you cannot have the phone anywhere near the driver uh, in a car out there. And that's where we're getting in. And we're really good at coming up with legislation, Michael. Mm. What we're not good at is enforcing it and giving the people on the ground the, the means to monitor and to enforce. Mm. But we also have to encourage. We should encourage drivers who uh, the vast majority of which are not going out there with the intention of having a collision. You know, and, uh, you know, we're in danger of tarring everybody with the one brush. Uh, so we should encourage people uh, to go and get, um, uh, dare I say it, and not because I'm in the business, but additional training, raise the level of road fitness. Like, there's a load of people out there who do not know how to drive on motorways because it's not included in the in the driving program. Mm. And nor should it be, in my book, because they are novices. And you cannot put novices out onto high-speed, high-volume motorways. Um, okay. But post no. the motorway with the end plate, you most certainly could. Mm, well, it's not always motorways where people are going fast. Noel, uh, WhatsApping is saying the speeding of vehicles on the Ballymckinney Road, uh, a built-up area, is deplorable. Uh, he said he was on to the Road Safety Authority about the situation on several occasions. Last time uh, he spoke to them, they suggested he'd highlight it on local radio. Um, yeah. which is interesting I, I think uh, uh, in terms of how the Road Safety Authority are responding to people's complaints there's a, another story today as well uh, Tony that uh, there may be uh, an increased uh, penalty point system at bank holidays uh, because I suppose bank holidays are notorious uh, for fatalities uh, and injuries on the roads There's a greater volume of traffic moving at bank holidays and at at those bank holidays, Michael, there's people moving with family, with people in the car who ordinarily don't travel in that way, you know, and they're heading across to, to see relatives on the far end of the country or down south or whatever, and they're not planning their journey correctly. They have You talk about distraction in the car from a phone, five times more distracting in a car than a phone is a small child. Now, we're not going to bar children mm. from, the back, from the back of cars. Um, but uh, on, on a personal level, and we're, we're in the school year, if you go to any of the schools, you'll see young children, under 12 and under 5 feet tall, in old money, in the front seat of cars. They should not be in the front left side of a car. That used to be called the 75% seat when I started to drive. Because you were 75% more in danger as a passenger, front seat passenger, than you were anywhere else. Just because there's an airbag and a seat retention system there now today doesn't mean you put your child in there. They're facing an airbag that is 120 litres when it is deployed. If that child comes in contact with that airbag and vice versa, there's a story to be told, a sad story to be told. Okay, well, hopefully that'll give uh, some food so for thought for parents this morning. Yeah, absolutely. And into mm. the back where they belong. Okay. Five feet tall, under 12.
Tony, uh, thanks for your expertise. Uh, as always, as I say, I hope uh, you've given some of our listeners some food for thought uh, this morning. Uh, and I, I think everybody uh, who is qualified to drive knows what it is they should be doing and knows when they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing and maybe just to think about that. Tony, thanks, as I say. Tony Toner, uh, an on-road driving consultant. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's a, a strike in the health service which starts tomorrow. It's Section 39. 9, 10 and 56 workers who go on strike indefinitely. Let's speak to Niall Shanahan, Media Relations Director with Forza. Good morning to you, Niall, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, maybe you'd take the time uh, to tell us what Section 39, 10 and 56 workers are. Sure. Good morning, Michael, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we have 17 different employments around the country uh, tomorrow where uh, members of Forza, SITU and the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation would be taking indefinite strike action. Um, and you describe them there at the top of your piece as Section 39, Section 56 and Section 10 agencies. Each of those references essentially apply to the legislation under which these services are funded. So Section 39 uh, is health services, mostly disability services. So Enable Ireland is one of the bigger employers where uh, staff will be going out on strike uh, tomorrow, but also the Irish Wheelchair Association, uh, St. Joseph's Foundation in Cork. Section 56 uh, are services to uh, children and Section 10 are uh, services to people experiencing homelessness. So a lot of the services in the sector are delivered by these community and voluntary uh, organisations. And let's say within those delivering health services, you have health and social care professionals who, uh, like occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech and language, they're um, they're doing the same work at mm. the same grade as their counterpoints in the HSE, uh, but they're on a different rate of pay. Um, that pay differential is anything between 10 and 20%. It varies from employment to employment. And that wasn't and the, always the way, because if you take any of those organisations, yeah. Enable Ireland or the Irish Wheelchair Association or any of the 17 groups that you're talking about, uh, their pay is funded by the government, but the government funds the organisation who then goes to pay their staff. But that funding was cut yeah. in line with the hospital workers or the Section 38 workers, uh, as are known, uh, under the FEMPI legislation, the emergency legislation uh, at the time That's of correct, the crash. Yeah. But the hospital workers, yeah. the mainstream HSE workers, if you like, had their pay restored, whereas your members here didn't. That's right. From 2015 onwards, we had a series of uh, pay restoration deals in the public sector. Uh, But the link was effectively broken in 2009 with the collapse of the country's finances, the collapse of social partnership. These organisations, they had they had a link in pay. So anytime there was a pay improvement in the public sector, it was also passed on to these workers. In 2009, the funding to the agencies was cut. They were told, you know, cut pay in order to reduce your costs, but continue to deliver the service, which is what they did. But then, as you, as you mentioned, when pay began to be restored, these workers were left behind. In some cases, we know the pay differential can be as high as 20%. The net result of that is that 30% of the staff every year are walking out the door to take employment elsewhere. I spoke to uh, one Enable Ireland worker, a paediatric occupational therapist, she finished up her job with Enable last Friday and started work with a Section 38 agency today. She found the decision to move from the team she was working in and the children she was working with 
extremely difficult, but she said that, you know, the cost of living uh, in Dublin, where she, she had relocated, was too much, and mm. she, she had to take a, a job with better terms and conditions, but was very heavy-hearted about leaving her colleagues and her clients behind. And I've spoken to a number of members working in the sector throughout the country over the last year, and it's a very similar story. They're, they're, they're very focused, very dedicated to their work, uh, and very, very focused on their on their clients' needs, and they have a great working relationship with them. But for some, the financial pressure has just become too much, and they've left. That's adding to the recruitment costs for each of these agencies. But it means as well that you don't have the same level of continuity with staff. You're struggling to maintain a full staff complement. That means access to the services for service users is compromised, and it means that waiting lists are getting longer. So that has led to a situation where our members balloted in favour of industrial yeah. action and have served notice of indefinite strike action. It's the action of last resort. They really feel as though there yeah, are... And, no and they voted in left. huge numbers. 99.5 of those uh, who were balloted, yes, uh, 99.5% that is, of those who were balloted voted in favour of taking industrial action. This is not a, a flash strike. It's anything but. You no. served strike notice on the 17th of October, I, I think. Uh, and we were told uh, the talks would take place last week that the talks have been ongoing but uh, that they would intensify last week uh, I think it was the Taoiseach who was saying that in the doll the week before but here we are uh, and you're about to strike indefinitely tomorrow where are those talks yep. at? Well in the th- it's three weeks to the day since we served notice of industrial action and within those three weeks no talks have taken place I think the budget became a priority uh, for the government, and so we've had no engagement from the HSE, the Department of Health, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, which will be the main departments or agencies that we would be talking to in this context, but no talks have taken place. Uh, we thought perhaps in the wake of the budget, particularly with the speech by the Minister, uh, Roderick O'Gorman, last Thursday in the Dáil about uh, resolving this issue, but no contact has been made no talks have taken place and we're on the eve of strike action now. It doesn't look as though uh, we can expect an intervention before those picket lines are formed at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. It's going to cause an awful lot of disruption, I'm sure. We'll leave it there for the moment though, Niall. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. Niall Shanahan is uh, Media Relations uh, Director with Forza. Now, before we go, let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us. So many people in touch with us uh, about Israel uh, and Gaza. Um, We'd um, somebody in touch uh, on WhatsApp saying if the Iranians are helping the Arabs to regain the lands the Israelis robbed from them, so what? The USA have armed Israel to the teeth and the weapons have been used to put down the Palestinians by brutal force for decades. That was a hateful uh, person uh, that uh, you were speaking to earlier on. That's uh, Sean who was uh, in touch with us uh, this morning. Um, what that action was about, that action, fake news, question by Reid in him asking that terrorist appeaser about Hamas uh, betraying, putting their Palestinian peers in Gaza in mortal danger by ISISing the massacre of 1,300 Israelis on the 7th of October if he then allows the appeaser to downplay the massacre by her calling the massacre an action. Thank you.
I think it was clear that uh, that action uh, was uh, condemned uh, on the programme uh, this morning by everybody who spoke about the discussion or about the, the, the topic. Uh, Sean and Navin, thank you for your message as well. Uh, he says, Michael, just listening to your discussion about road safety, fatalities and policing, I'm an experienced driver in my 60s and my opinion is uh, that if I obey the rules of the road and keep within the speed limit, I am perceived as a nuisance and in the way of those who flaunt the rules of the road. Yeah, never a truer word, Sean, especially uh, in the towns, uh, I think, uh, and driving at 50 kilometres an hour is uh, something that really does annoy an awful lot of people. There's no doubt about that. If you try it, you'll find that uh, they're very close uh, to your tail end. Uh, One last message, Michael, they need to make high-vis jackets compulsory for cyclists and pedestrians. Also keep speed vans out of towns and on the main roads. So that's a, a listener in Athboy. Thanks for your message. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.